Let's continue worshiping uh, by hearing the word this morning. And as we continue to walk through the book of James, we're in chapter five, the final chapter. And today we're in verses seven through 11. James five, verses seven through 11. And this is God's word to you today. Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage for the coming of the Lord is near. Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. For examples of patience and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We give great honor to those who endure under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end, for the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. God's word to you today. You can be seated. Thank you so much. Good morning, everyone. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at New City. It's a joy to be with you today as we continue our journey through the book of James. And I want to just encourage you, if you have a copy of the scriptures, um, to open them to James chapter 5, the final chapter in this, this powerful letter that we've been walking through. We started in February. Can you believe that? And we're almost to the end. And our passage today, verses 7 through 11, actually marks the ending the conclusion to James's letter. So verses seven through 20, the final verse in the letter, are really a long conclusion. And he gives three encouragements, James does, to his congregation that he's writing to as he finishes his, his letter. And we should pay attention to how things begin and how things end. So as James finishes here, we wanna lean in and, and listen to his final words. And what he gives are three encouragements. And if you're taking notes or you have something to take notes on, maybe just jot these down because these will be the final three messages in our teaching together here. And by the way, you can go back and listen to all the messages. They're captured online as well as the study guides. If you want to use them in your group or your family at some point, they're all online that you can find there. But James gives three encouragements as he finishes the letter in chapter 5. Again, beginning in verse 7 all the way through verse 20. The first encouragement that we just heard today is to be patient. To be patient, specifically in trials and in hardships and in times where we're wondering how we're going to get through what we're going through, which is the theme of his letter, that we're meant to be patient. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. And then he says, be prayerful, verses 12 through 18. And we'll talk about that next week. Be prayerful. Again, uh, as we go through trials and difficulty that we would turn our attention to God and we'll talk about that next week. And then the final encouragement, the third encouragement that James gives is to be pursuing. And you say, pursuing of what? Pursuing actually of other people. Pursuing of other people who have wandered away. And James says, I want to encourage you to go after them and to bring them back to their senses so that they can follow Jesus once again. And remember that James is primarily an instructional book. It's a book of wisdom. And so you ask, what is wisdom? Well, wisdom is the sacred combination of knowledge and practice. There's a lot of people that know a lot of things, but they don't put it into practice. There's a lot of people that do a lot of things, but they have no idea why they're doing them or no knowledge of them. 
And James says the gift that God gives to us as his followers is to be wise. This sacred intersection between knowledge and of practice. And remember, again, that James is a book of instruction along the lines of all the other books, uh, the 22 books in the New Testament that are instructional. And so there's three categories in the Bible. Do you remember this? Three categories of books or letters. The first category is the foundations. And so in the New Testament, it's the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The four Gospels are the foundations of what we believe. And the Gospels, or the good news, are a selected biography of Jesus, of his life, of his ministry, of his works, and his miracles. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, he's curating the stories of Jesus to us so that we would know Jesus, we would know who he is, we would know what he's done for us, and that we would believe. And we know there's so many other stories that Jesus accomplished and did so many other miracles and works and teachings. How do we know that? Because John says that if all the stories of Jesus were collected, there's not enough books in the world that could contain all those stories. Isn't that mind-blowing? So what you have in front of you, the first four books in the New Testament, are a selected biography of Jesus by the Holy Spirit so that you would know Jesus and have a firm foundation in knowing who you believe and what you're believing and living that out. And then the second category of biblical books, remember, is historical. So there's one history book in the New Testament. Do you remember what it is? Acts, the book of Acts. And Luke wrote that as well. The gospel of Luke and Acts go together. So Luke wrote an account, a first-rate historical account of the early church in the first century and how they took the foundations, the gospels, and actually lived it out in a time and a place. So in other words, this isn't a fable or a made-up story. This is a history of a real people, just like you, in real time, that had a real faith and a real Jesus and had real problems. And we're wanting to know how they're gonna get through what they're going through. And the book of Acts records the history of the church as they wrestle with some of the things, they, same things that you're wrestling with. And they wonder how they're gonna get through what they're going through. And they wonder what difference their faith in Jesus makes. And so Luke gives an account of how the church takes their faith and spreads it from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, here, near, and far. And the gospel begins to explode. And it's not hyperbole to say that you're sitting here right now because of what happened in the early church, that group of 120 disciples, followers of Jesus, that were faithful to tell the story of God to other people, and on and on and on and on, and here you are. And then there's a third category of scripture, instructional, and that's where we find James. And he joins 22 books that are instructional in the New Testament, from Romans to Revelation. And what is instruction? Instruction of how to take the foundations, in a real historical time and live it out. And by the way, if you're just beginning to understand the scriptures or maybe you've been studying the Bible for a long time and you didn't know how it's all put together, the same three categories, if you're taking notes, foundational, historical, and instructional, are in the Old Testament. 39 books in the Old Testament. There's five foundational books known as the Pentateuch, the five books or the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those five books are the foundations of who God is and how he interacts in relationship with his people. There's 12 historical books in the Old Testament. And then again, there's 22 instructional books. Okay, so you have foundations and history, historical books and instructional books in both the Old Testament, 39 books, and the New Testament, 27 books, most of them letters. Again, foundational, historical, and instructional. And why do I say that? Because it's so important as we study God's word to understand context. 
and to understand what the writer was primarily doing. So it's not that there's not foundational material in James, there is. It's not that there's some historical uh, data in here, there is. But the primary aim of James was to instruct people just like us who were following Jesus about how to live out their faith. And so when he concludes his letter, he says, I want to give you three instructional encouragements to be patient, to be prayerful, and to be pursuing of other people. And today I want to spend a few minutes talking about being patient, James 5, verses 7 through 11, this first encouragement. You know, patience is a wonderful virtue, but it just takes forever to get it. Wouldn't you agree? It's so difficult to be patient, to do what James is instructing his audience, each of us now through the Holy Spirit, to, to be patient. And why is it so difficult? Well, let's turn to two cultural poets for some wisdom. The first are uh, two Toms. The first Tom is Tom Petty, who wrote that waiting is what? The hardest part. And Tom had it right. You know, Augustine said all truth, if it's really true, is God's truth. So whatever Tom's motive in writing this song, he had it right that waiting is difficult. It is the hardest part. And Tom Kelly, who was an Irish philosopher, said this, that people take uh, time far more seriously than eternity. Isn't that true? That we take our time our calendars far more seriously than the big story of eternity of what God is doing in all of time in the parade of providence as we've called it before. You know, we're on one little float waving and we can see a float in front of us and a float behind us, but God sees the whole parade of providence from beginning to end in humanity. And, and Tom Kelly says, you know, we take our little float and our time and place a lot more seriously than the big parade of what God is doing. And why, why is that? Just for a few minutes. Why is it that we struggle so much with being patient? You know, when Paul begins to describe love, if you're at a wedding this summer, you'll probably hear this passage in 1 Corinthians 13. What's the first descriptor that Paul gives of godly, true, biblical love? Love is, 1 Corinthians 13, 4, patient. Interesting that he begins with that. That love, true love, is patient. Now, why do we struggle so much with patience? I think it's because, see if you agree with this, that we were plagued with a sort of hurry sickness, if you will. A sickness of always being in a hurry, even even when you don't know why you're in a hurry, that, that there's something broken inside of us in terms of how we gauge time that constantly wants us to move faster and to be in a hurry. And I actually think it's, it's an evil story that comes from the evil one that causes us to want to be in a hurry. And so we're plagued with a sort of hurry sickness individually and collectively that's robbing us and taking us uh, from so much life that God wants to give to us. You know, Time Magazine, interestingly, uh, was recounting uh, a Senate a subcommittee that heard testimony from a group of experts back in the 1960s about the advancement of technology that was going to be coming in the coming generation. And the testimony led them to ask a lot of questions and to understand more about this coming technology that was coming in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and even when we, where we are now. 
And the finding was that, you know, so many advancements are going to be made in technology that people are going to have so much free time on their hands. And the government, your government was worried about you that you're going to have far too much time on your hands. and It'll be dangerous for society because of all the advancements in technology and all the time that you have on your hands. So how, how is that working for you now, all the time that you have on your hands with all the advancement? Yeah, they, they nailed it, right? No. We have a hurry sickness that even when technology frees up time, we fill it so quickly with more and more activity. And here's why. Okay, everyone watch this. Because hurry is not about a disorganized or disordered schedule. Hurry is about a disordered heart. Hurry is not about a disordered schedule. Hurry is about a disordered heart. So even when we have free time or time giving back in our schedule, our disordered hearts quickly fill it with more activity and more hurry. And just to say, hurry is not the same thing as being busy. If you read the foundations of the scriptures in the Gospels of the New Testament, those four selected biographies of Jesus, you're going to read about a man, Jesus, who was very busy, oftentimes from sunup to sundown, teaching, healing, uh, doing all kinds of miracles and preaching. His day was full. He was busy and laser focused on the greatest mission ever given, the redemption of humanity. And in those three plus years of his public ministry, he accomplished so much, preached so many sermons, healed so many people, went to so many different places. But Jesus was never in a hurry. See the difference? He was busy. He had a full schedule. He was focused on a mission, but he wasn't in a hurry. Because again, hurry is the evil story from the evil one that says we can never fill our lives with enough activity with a pace that that just spins faster and faster and faster and faster. And the reality is, you know, why is James choosing to conclude his letter this way? Because he's writing to people just like us that were in a hurry. And the crises that they were going through was revealing their will. It was revealing what was on the inside. We talked last week about the toothpaste, you know, being squeezed, the tube of toothpaste, and what's on the inside comes out. And that's what crisis does, for the better or for the worse. When you get squeezed in your life, financially, relationally, whatever it might be for you today, and I know many of you are going through it right now, and you're wondering how am I going to get through what I'm going through. And what crisis does, in whatever form it's taking in your life, is it squeezes the tube of toothpaste and what's on the inside comes out. And oftentimes, if you're like me, I don't love what I see that comes out. And that's the point is that God oftentimes will allow storms to come into our lives to reveal our will and to draw us closer to him. And you know what I want to do when storms come in my life? And see if anybody's like me. I want to power through them as quickly as possible so that we're done. I want to get through the hard thing that I'm going through. And so I do what? I accelerate my pace. And oftentimes the very reason why we're going through a storm or that God has allowed a storm to enter into our life is to slow down and pay attention to him. There's someone in the room this morning that needs to hear this, that the reason why the rain is coming in your life is to soften your hardened heart. So there's an agrarian metaphor here that we're going to get to in verses 7 and 8 in chapter 5. And the reason why oftentimes the rain comes in our hearts and it beats against our, uh, in our, our lives is to soften the soil for the seed of God's word and truth to enter. 
And I can't tell you how many times I've sat with people, and you probably have too, that it's only in a crisis that their hearts are turned back to Jesus. That they begin to ask and pay attention to what God might be doing. Or it sends them the other direction, right? And that's my experience as a pastor, is that in crisis, which we're all going through, remember, you're either in a storm, you're coming out of a storm, you're getting ready to go into a storm. And in crisis or in the storms of your life, we turn our hearts, they soften back to God or we harden down and we continue to harden ourselves to the things of God. And we wanna get through what we're going through as quickly as possible, but sometimes God wants to get through to us. And it's through the storm and the crisis that God's knocking on the door of your heart, that God's sending the rain to soften the soil of your heart, to receive his good seed, his good word, his good news to you about who he is. And because we're in such a hurry, we miss it. Let let me just be very clear, painfully clear, that hurry is not in alignment with the love story of God. Hurry prevents us from understanding the story of God because we're so busy and we're moving so fast that we miss it. Let me me say it a different way. And if you don't get anything else out of this, I hope you'll get this. Hurry kills love. Hurry kills love. And you say, Chris, aren't you exaggerating a little bit? No. Hurry kills love. It's incompatible with the love story of God. How? Hurry keeps us from rightly receiving God's love. Because again, we're in such a hurry to get through what we're going through that we miss the one that's walking with us through it. And the one that wants to make himself even more known to you in the midst of your difficult relationship, your crisis, the financial thing you're going through, the thing that's waiting for you at work this week. We want to get through it so badly that we miss the one that's walking with us through it and that wants to make himself known to us. And so we don't rightly receive God's love. God reminded his people in Psalm 46 verse 10 to be still and know that I am God. But in a crisis, in a storm, we want to move. We don't want to be still. And I wonder, I wonder how many of us have missed the understanding, the knowledge of who God is and his love for us, knowing God. Not just knowing about God, knowing God. We're going to start 2024 with with a, a series on experiencing God how to know and do God's will in your life. So you gotta hang around until 2024. But there's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. I can know a lot of facts and knowledge about God, but never really know God. And the psalmist reminds us, you know, speaking God's word, that we have to be still to know God. How many of us don't know God, truly don't know him? We know about God, but we don't know God because we're not still. We haven't slowed down enough to receive God's love, but it's even more than that. Hurry kills love, not just because we can't receive, but what else? Because we can't give it. We can't rightly give love when we're moving so fast. We talked about last week, do you show up to a room, whatever it might be, a boardroom, your kitchen table, you know, a room here in your church, a room somewhere in the city this week, and you say, I'm here. Aren't you guys glad? 
Or do you show up into the rooms that God has you in, in your life, the relational circles that you're in, and say, you're here. You're here and that matters to me. You're here and I see you. And I want to know more about you and your story. And I want to listen. But we're in such a hurry, right, that we don't listen and we don't see people. How many of you, you've been at a party or you've been in a, in a space in between meetings or in a hallway and someone says, how are you doing? And for just a moment, you think, is this for real? Like, do they really want to know how I'm doing? And maybe you think, I think it is real. And you start to actually say, you know what, I'm, I'm not doing great, actually. And here's something that I'm really struggling with right now. And you realize about 20 words into it that, that they're on a beach somewhere, you know, or they're on number seven and thinking about the shot that they want to hit. They, they're not with you anymore. And after about 10 words, they're, they're somewhere else or they're thinking about how they're going to respond to you or what they want to say to you. They've already moved on. Don't you hear the pace there? I'm going so fast. I either want to solve your problem. I, I, I want to speak into it. I want to tell you about my problem, right? Or let me tell you about how I solved your problem that I'm just not able to sit with you in it and listen. And it's all about pace. Yeah, I love what Richard Foster said about this. He said, superficiality is the curse of our age. And if superficiality is the curse, like surface, everything's surface. If superficiality is the curse of our age and time, then hurry cast the spell. Hurry cast the spell. We're going so quick that I can't slow down to pay attention to anyone, to rightly give love to them, because that's all about pace. And so when we talk about hurry killing love, yeah, it does, because it keeps us from receiving love from God. And when we're not able to rightly receive love from God, then we have nothing to give to other people. And so we hurry past them every single day, and we don't see the people that are hurting all around us, and we certainly don't offer them anything, because you can't give away what you don't have. So you gotta be still and know God so that you can help other people to know God in that way. Anecdotally, I love the story of William Herndon who was one of the many biographers of Abraham Lincoln. And, and he recounts a story about Lincoln growing up in rural poverty. His mother died and his stepmother actually said about Abraham Lincoln that you know, he was a voracious reader but they only had two books in the house they couldn't afford anymore. They had the Bible and Aesop's Fables. And she recounted about Abraham Lincoln, every, even from a young age, how he would read slowly and out loud. And he would read slowly and out loud over and over and over and over again, moving so slow. Abraham Lincoln's business partner, another attorney, said he was the slowest man I ever met. Lincoln said about himself, I don't think fast. I'm very slow. And so Herndon remarked, he was you know, someone that read the least amount but understood the most of any person in America because he taught his brain to go very slow. Even as president, he would read things out loud over and over again. The greatest speech of the 19th century was less than 300 words. Slow, thoughtful. Why do I say this? Because we've traded, you know, biblical wisdom, the gift of wisdom, the intersection of knowledge and practice, for information. 
We take in so much information every day. All of us do. But what do we really understand? How much do we really know? The truth is I have to go very slow to really understand, to let those seeds of wisdom sink into my heart. But I'm so fast onto the next story in my news feed, onto the next thing on my Twitter feed that, I, that I'm not sitting with something, anything. And this reminds us that there is no such thing. Everyone listen to this. When it comes to discipleship, what is discipleship? Discipleship is the understanding of following Jesus. It's the process of following after Jesus. And the reality is that there's no such thing as microwave maturity. You cannot microwave your maturity. It takes time. It's a process. But we live in a world where everything's an assembly line, including our relationships. So a relationship comes by on the assembly line, and I do my little thing, and I fix it because, you know, I, this is, I, I can fix people. And by the way, you can't fix people, and you shouldn't try to fix people. And, and when you try to fix people, what you are is you're an assembly line worker with all these relationships coming by and you're, I'm just gonna do my little part here and then send it on down to the next person and they can fend, you know, f- fix the, the next thing. But here's the problem, is you're broken. So when you try to fix other people and you think that you're in control of other people and you can fix people, you're fixing them in the way that suits you to your brokenness. Instead of handing them back to the one who made them as a masterpiece, as a handcrafted person because discipleship is handcrafted, not mass produced. And it doesn't happen in a microwave, it happens over time. This is why James gives an agrarian metaphor, a farmer who has to wait, slow, patient. Uh, Many of you are familiar with Dallas Willard's work. Uh, Willard, when he was asked, what is the the most important thing in discipleship and following Jesus. Now, everyone listen here. This is, this is great wisdom. What, what, what is the most important thing in following Jesus? You don't have to raise your hand. How many of you want to be following Jesus closer in your life ne- this time next year than you are right now? How many of you want to be a step closer to Jesus in the future? Most of us do. How many of you want to find Jesus? For those of you who are exploring a relationship with Christ, you want to understand who Jesus is, the foundations of what God gave to us in the Gospels. Most of us do. We want to know who Jesus is. We want to follow after him. This is what Willard said was the one thing you have to do. And he said it's just one thing. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. That's all. That's it. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry hurry. Doesn't mean you're not busy. It doesn't mean you're not mission focused. It means you're not in a hurry because here's the deal. You can't get ahead. You can't move faster than the one you're following. Because if you're moving faster than the one you're following Jesus, then spoiler alert, newsflash, you're not following And you've put yourself, I've put myself in the place of God, leading. And I'm out in front of God. And the truth is, if we're honest with ourselves, in so many difficult situations and so many relationships, we get out ahead of God because God's not moving fast enough for us. This person's not getting better. I'm not getting better fast enough. 
I'm not satisfied with the pace of God. And so I move faster than even God is moving. Then God wants to move and I want to mass produce these things. Be more efficient, right? Instead of understanding that, no, I'm handcrafted and God's at work. Even when I don't see it, as we sang today, God is working. And Henry Nouwen said it this way. He said, you know, most of us are more wanderers than we are followers. So, you know, we say we're followers of Jesus, but the truth is many of us are wanderers. And he says we wander in two ways. See if this hits you. We wander by being paralyzed when life happens to us, right? And we go through hard things when, we, we're, when we're in a storm, coming out of a storm, going into a storm. We react and we wander from Jesus, the shepherd, by just shutting down and sitting in the corner and like I'm not moving. And life is just happening to me. And that happens for sure. But he said what happens more often is the second type of wandering is we get way out ahead of the shepherd. We just go faster and faster and faster. I've, I've got young drivers in my house right now, so I'm discipling a lot of these young drivers, right? So if I'm not here next week, right, pray for me. You know, you, every week is a harrowing experience right now to, to teach young drivers how to drive in Charlotte. And the number, by the way, students in here, the number one thing that I tell my kids, never believe a turn signal. Especially in Charlotte, they lie. They all lie. Never believe a turn signal. One of the things we're working on right now is that when you get to an intersection, slow down, right? Because in Charlotte, it's like, well, that means speed up when I get to an intersection, right? And yellow means maybe or hot pink. I'm going right through it, right? So people speed up. So we see that our whole lives, that people speed up. But most accidents happen, look at, uh, go look at the data on insurance companies. Most accidents happen where? At intersections. We're, think about it this way. Where different stories are colliding. I'm trying to go here, you're trying to go here. And we meet in this close proximity in this space and we collide with one another. And so the principle is when you come to intersections in your life where you've got to make a decision to go left or right or go straight through, whatever that might be in the decision that you're, you're wanting to make, you're trusting the Lord for, I've got to be wise and I've got to slow down because in order to be wise, I have to go slow. Be still and know that I am God. Slow down. Moreover, I tell our young drivers, right, when you get to turns, especially sharp curves, you've got to slow down. The temptation is to speed up through the curve. And so when, when curves come in your life, which they all come, when, when turns come in your life, sudden turns, right? Uh, cataclysmic turns in your life, relationally, fi- financially, whatever, the temptation is to speed up through it. And what James is saying is, no, you have to slow And there's an intentionality of slowing down and allowing God to speak through you and walk through the change, through the turn in your life. And so when we get back, let's jump back into the passage here. He says, you got to wait for the Lord. Look at verses 7 through 11. How do you do that? How do we get out of the hurry sickness, the hurry business, and practice patience, practice slowing? Well, here's the first thing, verse 7, if you're taking notes. He says, you got to know who you're waiting for. Why would you wait? Well, you're going to wait because Jesus is returning. In other words, God is the one wearing the watch, not me. He's the one setting the pace that sees the whole providential parade from start to finish. 
And so here's what we believe, just even theologically, just under a foundation of what we believe as Christ followers, is that Jesus came, that the king has come, and he modeled for us how to live. And he did for us what we would not do for ourselves and could not do for ourselves, being a perfect sacrifice for us on the cross. And through his resurrection, we are resurrected and we're invited to live as new creations in Christ. So the king has come, we believe that. But here's the second thing, the king is coming. In the same way we believe that the king has come, and this is interesting, that whole idea of Tom Kelly saying we take time more seriously than we do eternity. Many people celebrate and focus on that King Jesus has come, and we see his story laid out in the Gospels, but we forget that the king is coming, that Christ will return. And we live in this era of grace, an era of redemption of the gospel, where people, men, women, and children are understanding through the power of the scriptures and the truth of Jesus, who Jesus is and learning to find him and and follow after him in their lives. And, And James says, look at the passage, that the end is near, the time is drawing near, that the king will return and bring his people together. And in fact, the Bible says the king is waiting so that people have an opportunity to understand the true story of the king, the true story of the gospel. So we're patient for something. And in this instance, as Christians, we're patient for someone that the king will return again. And if you go back and look at the end of chapter four and the beginning of chapter five that we've covered the last two weeks, he says the great temptation is to put your faith in your stock and, and all your hope in your money and your plans. Remember that? And so you get, in context, he's writing this now and he says, you know, the story of the world says, just plan all, make all your plans for tomorrow and amass as much money as you can because you're nothing but a consumer. But there's actually a third option. The third option is what James gives in this passage, James 5, 7 through 11, that you could be patient. And so instead of attacking the world and, and spending your days attacking and attacking or just being a victim of the world story that life just sort of happens to me and there's nothing I can do about it, James says, no, we don't have to do either of those as Christ followers. We can be patient in the story because we know that there's a bigger story and we know that our king is coming again. And then he gives this metaphor powerfully. And this is a metaphor that's used all throughout the New Testament, an agrarian metaphor, which was, this was an agrarian culture farmers, people who understood that you've got to plant, you've got to tend, you've got to plow, but then ultimately you've got to look above. Because as a farmer, I can't control the sun and I can't control the rain. So I can do my part in the story, but ultimately it's God. It's God that is growing people. It's God that is bringing a harvest. It's God that is working even when I don't see it, especially when I don't see it. And so this is the whole idea when it comes to the orientation to time, especially in, in crisis, is I can see myself as an assembly line worker where I only just do this thing and relationships and things are just passing me by and life is just happening to me, right? And it just speeds by and I just want it to go faster and faster and be more and more efficient. Or I can see myself as a farmer who sows seeds, who you know, tends to my crops, who's attentive, but ultimately is looking constantly to above for the sun and the rain, for God to do what only God can do. And by the way, in your relationships, right, if you show up with other people needing something from them, 
being a consumer of them. I need you to be something for me so life makes sense for me because I can't make sense of it through Jesus. And if Jesus like isn't enough for you, then no one or nothing will ever be enough, by the way. And if you show up as a consumer to other people and just constantly grabbing and needing, that's how relationships explode and become terribly toxic. But if you show up in people's lives knowing that you're a child of God and I've already received from King Jesus everything that I need, he came for me and he's coming again for me, I don't need anything from you. I might have desires, I might have you know, wants, but I don't have needs because they're, they're met by Jesus. And so how I show up in your life is completely different. I'm not a consumer, I'm a child that receives from the king and not from you. And so I'm not a taker, I'm a giver. And that's exactly what James is talking about, that I can be a farmer and say, hey, I see God at work in your life and I know God's at work in your life and I just wanna be a small little part of that. Instead of I'm trying to control your life and fix you. And remember, people are not problems to be solved. And when you orient yourself in relationships to that, that this is a problem that I need to solve, you're an assembly line worker. I just got to solve this problem and then send them out to the next person that they can solve another problem. But when I don't show up that way, when I see that people are actually sacred and holy mysteries to be discovered, and that God, according to the writer of Hebrews, is the author of the story, not me, then I can show up and say, I just want to be a part of your story because I see God at work, and I want to be a part of that, and I want to participate in the great thing that God is doing, and I can be patient in that because it's on his time frame and not my own. He says the indicator that you're not doing this, by the way, look at verse 9, is that you grumble. What a great word. How many of you, you don't raise your hand, grumbled on the way over here? Maybe you've grumbled through this message. How many of you are grumblers? Just be honest. You're a grumbler. James says, look, this is the number one indicator, verse 9, that you're not being patient with God, yourself, and other people, that you're not understanding the true story is that you grumble. Why? Because people aren't changing on your time frame. They're not getting with the program. Whose program? Your program of who they need to be, of the mark that they need to hit in your life. They're not performing. They're not meeting the standard. Whose standard? Your standard. So I'm not showing up as a fellow participant in God's bigger story. I'm showing up as an author, someone who is trying to write your story and tell you the things that need to be taken out and tell you the things that need to be added. And James says, no, the, the Lord is near. The Lord is standing at the door. He's the one listening to your conversations. Don't grumble against one another. And then he says, okay, here's some great examples. And let's finish here, verses 10 and 11. He says, um, let's think about the prophets. Who were people that were able to rid themselves of hurry sickness and be patient in the way that God is talking about here? And James pulls the prophets. Now, James was a good Hebrew. He grew up learning the Old Testament. He understood the prophets. But what was a prophet? We hear that word a lot, a prophet. What is a prophet? A prophet is someone who heard from God and spoke to God's people. A priest, as we've taught before, is someone that heard from God's people and spoke to God. So a prophet was someone who had to hear the voice of the Lord, someone like Samuel, whose name means the one who heard God. 
who would hear from God and then speak to God's people. But here's the deal, guys. Why is this such a brilliant metaphor and a pull in in terms of an example of how to be patient and not hurry? Because the prophets were speaking about a time that they did not live in. They were speaking about the coming of the Lord. They were speaking about the second coming of the Lord even. So the prophets had to watch this. The prophets had to zoom way out from their time. So let's use our metaphor of the parade of providence of humanity. They had to get way out of their float and be able to see the whole parade route from start to finish, from Genesis to Revelation. And the prophets would hear from God and speak to a people that oftentimes did not want to be spoken to. And they did not receive the prophet's message. And the, and the prophets oftentimes you know, incurred all kinds of relational harm and physical harm and scorn because of their message, but they gave the message anyway. So James brilliantly brings them up as an example of patience, of zooming out. And so for many of us, just practically, just by way of application, when we're in problems, when we're in crisis, especially in relationships, and you think about like a microscope, we wanna zoom in. We just wanna get really close and zoom in. This is what is driving me crazy about. You know, this thing right here. That's what I want to talk about is this thing. But actually, what needs to happen is we need to zoom out. So, so, so this is driving me nuts. And that might be true. But you know what I see? I see a much bigger picture for you. So, so right now, just going to be honest, this might be driving me crazy about you. But I want to zoom out and see the bigger picture of what God's doing in you and through you. And by the way, what a great message and understanding for dads, right? Dads, right? Fellow dads, like our job is to be constantly zooming out. Sometimes we got to zoom and say, you're driving me nuts with this. But the reason why you're driving me nuts is because you're better than this. The reason why this is beneath you is because God is doing so much, something so much bigger in you and through you. And I just want to bless you and speak the big story over you. And so sometimes you got to zoom in, absolutely. But many times as dads, you got to zoom out and say, can I tell you where your float is going in the parade and just bless you? And I want to tell you what's in front of you as you trust the Lord. This is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, he wrote four letters to the church at Corinth, a church that gave him a lot of trouble, but that he loved. And in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 15, he says, you have many teachers, but you have not many fathers. And I became a father to you in the Lord. And what a word for our culture right now. Lots of voices, lots of whatever, but not many people have a spiritual father. Fathers who will zoom out in their stories and say, let me tell you the big things that God is doing in your life and that I see. So by the way, all of us guys are spiritual fathers. God calls us to be a spiritual father. So not just to our own children or our home, but if that's not your circumstance or situation, you can be a spiritual father. All of us are called to be spiritual fathers, to bless people, to speak the big story over people, just like the prophets did. And then James evokes Job. And we know the story of Job. And how many of you would like to trade stories with Job? Nobody would, right? Except for, whoops, here's a record scratch where James says, actually, Pay attention to these three words in verse 11 at the end. Actually, at the end of the story, because the float was terrible, but at the end of the parade in the story, actually, Job turned out to be a man of great endurance. And he experienced, look at the words here. He experienced the kindness of God. 
the tenderness of God, the mercy of God. At the end of the story, it's a story about God's heart and his character. Remember when I said that hurry kills love? If Job would have been in a hurry and all the terrible things that happened to him, all the storms that came in his life, he would have missed the tenderness of God, the kindness of God, the mercy of God. So when we think about Job's story, we don't think about those things to describe his story, but actually Job knew God. It was through his storms, through his wonderment about how he's gonna get through what he's going through, that he met God in this powerful, visceral way. And this takes us all the way back to chapter one, the beginning of the letter, where James says, verse three, for you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance, what was Job? A Job was a man of great endurance. That your endurance has a chance to what? To grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you'll be perfect and complete. I'm not making this up, it's in the Bible. James 1 verse 4, lacking nothing. And all we think about, or let me just, all I think about oftentimes when I'm going through a crisis is getting on the other side of it. But James says it's actually the storm, the crisis that God is getting through to me. And it's through my endurance, in other words, patience, trusting God, slowing down, that endurance is allowed to grow. Now pay attention. He says that you would be mature, complete, and lacking nothing. In other words, you are no longer a consumer because you don't need anything because you have it all from King Jesus. And that's the power of patience. We cannot move faster than the one we're following. To him alone be the glory today. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your presence here this morning. Thank you for speaking to us through your word. We're grateful. We wanna be grateful people. So help us to fix our eyes on you. Help us today to remember that you're standing at the door and you're coming soon. So as we go about our days, even today, celebrating and working and eating and making plans and spending money and dreaming, would you help us to be steadfast in you? Help us to remember in our trials the saints who have gone before us, the prophets, Job, other people who patiently endured their suffering for the sake of your story, the true story. And thank you that they held fast to the gospel in a world that was telling them otherwise. And in doing so, they give us courage that we can borrow from, that our yes can continue to be to you and to your true story in our lives. So help us to hear your voice today and to follow you patiently. Give us the wisdom to know what you've spoken to us today and the courage and faith to obey. In Jesus' name. Amen.